Hi everyone, welcome to Season 2 of the Asian Hustle Network Podcast, where we interview Asian entrepreneurs and professionals around the world. And for this season, we're going to take our conversations deeper about our Asian identity and hustle stories. We also want to announce that we are hosting our first ever Asian Hustle Network Uplifted Conference next spring in Las Vegas. For more info and to reserve your seats, check out our website at asianhustlenetwork.com. Don't forget to grab a copy of our recently released book, Uplifted, Journeys of Abundance, Community, and Identity, which tells the personal stories of how 21 Asian American entrepreneurs are shifting culture. You can order it on our website as well. Hey guys, welcome to the Asian Hustle Network podcast. My name is Brian. And my name is Maggie. And we interview Asian entrepreneurs around the world to amplify their voices and empower Asians to pursue their dreams and goals. We believe that each person has a message and a unique story from their entrepreneurial journey that they can share with all of us. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Asian Hustle Network podcast. Today, we have a very special guest with us. His name is John Lim. John is the 27-year-old CEO and founder of Ugly LLC, an indie game studio producing niche-specific cult classic card games, such as the best-selling Asian-American party game line, Asian Flush, and the ultimate game to inspire the best high conversations, Puff Puff Pass. John, who is the son of South Korean immigrants, was born and raised in Maryland. Growing up, John didn't have many Asian friends, and at one point, he remembered feeling profoundly unlucky to have been born Asian. He had what he calls his Asian awakening in college thanks to an Asian student association. Upon graduating college, he went through a phase of not knowing what to do with his life, which was compounded by the pressure from his mother to get a real job. He moved to Korea for a year as a way to get closer to his roots and to buy time. He taught English to make ends meet. Eventually, he moved on to digital marketing, but he couldn't kick this urge to launch his own business, much to his mother's chagrin. Always a fan of card games and drinking games because it gave him an easy way to connect with others. In 2018, John decided to give it a go and he created a game for other Asian Americans like him with just $500. Having sold tens of thousands of games, Asian Flush is now the best-selling game for Asian Americans. John has generated close to $3 million through his games since launching in 2018. John, welcome to the show. Hi guys, thanks for the intro. I feel like I don't need to say anything anymore. You guys got <laughs> the whole story right there. <laughs> I want to start by saying we are so proud of what you achieved in just three years and the game that you created. We see it everywhere. Honestly, we see our friend's house. We yeah. hear it mentioned all the time. And to be able to talk to you right now about you creating this board game, it's a true honor for you to have you in the podcast for sure. Yeah, thanks so much. I mean... Yeah, I don't know what to say. It's it's an honor for me to be on this on this podcast as well. Um, I've kind of you know I've had my finger on the pulse of Asian happenings online, and I've kind of witnessed Asian hustle network from where it was to where it is now. And so um, you know, props to you guys as well for you know developing something amazing. And I'm happy we get to share this moment together. Thank you, thank you so much for that. And then let's, let's kind of dive, dive like dive deep into it, okay? Like, so you mentioned in your bio that you were lost before creating this card game. Like, what was going through your mind during this time period, and what kind of pressures were you feeling from your family to like get a traditional job? And how did you sort of like convince yourself that this is the right path you want to head down? Because a lot of people have trouble have trouble sticking to like with their dreams while getting a lot of pressure from their family. How did you manage this? Yeah. Yeah. So the pressure was uh, pretty high. I think it, it didn't help that, well, I've got two older, brilliant sisters. They are seven and 10 years older than me. So always they were 
so far into the future and had their stuff together and, um, you know, are doing well in school and, and pursuing these career paths that my mom really proved of. So my oldest sister is a doctor and then the other sister is a pharmacist. And of course, the oldest sister married like a PhD biochemist. And, you know, so there's just all this sort of like professionalism that my mom really wanted us to pursue. Um, And, you know, I I did end up getting into a good college. Uh, I went to Swarthmore College, which is one of the better liberal arts schools in the country. And so I think part of it was like, oh, my God, I have a mountain of school debt. I, you know, graduated from this prestigious college. My sisters are doing so well. Um, Obviously, there was a lot of you know, pressure to want to kind of fulfill, I guess, my potential, I, I guess, potential in my mom, my mom's eyes. Um, I guess the competing factor there was, uh, so my dad did pass away when I was 13 years old. Um, and that, well, I'm still dealing with that now in terms of, of what that really means um, in terms of how I've turned out and maybe what some of my issues and strengths are. But I think one of the best things that came out of that was that, you know, I realized that, you know, one day, and this is not new to anybody, but we all share the same fate as my father. I think the the circumstances of, of how I passed away was, was difficult because it was an accident and it just kind of happened overnight. And, and so for most of my life, I, I tried to internalize this idea that, well, that could be me too. And so, you know, am I going to, you know, live and die in, but living a, a vision of my life that my mom set forth, or do I want to pursue things in a way that I, I know that I could, you know, at least uh, die happy knowing that I had at least tried. So that that's kind of the, the two competing uh, ideologies in my mind. And um, obviously the one, uh, the entrepreneurship route won out in my mind. I'm so sorry to hear about your father. And I, I know that he must be, you know, extremely proud of, you know, what you've, you're doing right now. And I think even though what you mentioned, I think a lot of Asians go through that same experience about like trying to fulfill our parents' dreams and goals for ourselves, right? Because a lot of them want us to be doctors and lawyers and take the conventional path to success. And a lot of the times when we actually do that, we don't actually feel fulfilled or happy, right? But you you actually found something that was, you know, right for you. And you mentioned that, you know, before when you were growing up in Maryland, you actually didn't even want to be Asian. Like you actually felt embarrassed about that. Um, talk about your experience then. And like, did you go through an experience of like trying to find your Asian identity when you were growing up in Maryland? And how difficult was it for you at that time? And I, I guess before I yeah. get to that question, uh, sorry about that. I just want to comment on the, I mean, losing a family member, it's very tough. And you're, what you accomplished so far and the way that you took that, it's, we have a lot to be proud of. And, you know, I, I guess I can sort of relate to you because I have some deaths in my family as well. And I guess when you mentioned that, that mentality of, and that mindset of knowing that this can all come down to end at any time, it really keeps a person motivated. So, it's so, and I think I'm still dealing with that as well, but it's so easy to go down the path of darkness, but the fact that you stayed on, on the path and did amazing things, like 3 million sales are Asian plus, like hats off to you, man. We're proud of you for sure. Yeah. One thing I want to comment on that, maybe this is getting too deep, but I think going down the path of darkness and also uh, taking the path that I have, I think they're the same path. Like I, I felt 
I did go down a, a pretty dark path, but I, I feel like it was there that I kind of really forged a, a strong identity. And so it, without that, I don't, I don't think I get to the point where um, the business is doing well today. So I do want to at least mention that. Um, and what was the other question, Maggie, you said about oh, growing up in Maryland? Yeah, yeah. Growing up in Maryland, what was your experience um, like at that time? And I know you mentioned, you know, you didn't feel proud to be Asian at that time, right? And I, I, I can probably assume that you grew up in a predominantly non-Asian community. Um, is that right? And so, like, if that was the case, like, how was it like kind of like growing into your Asian identity and did you have a hard time dealing with it? Yeah, so in my high school, so I went to a private school um, and I think... If I remember correctly, there were maybe three other Asians in my class and then maybe like 15 throughout the entire school. Um, there was never any sort of like Asian student club. There just really weren't enough of us to do anything like that. Um, I guess to compound compound that, um, I, I grew up playing baseball for the first, you know, I, I played in college. I um, played for 20, 20 some odd years. So it was, a, it was a sport that my dad and I really enjoyed together. Um, and that's also not sports aren't also aren't really a place where a lot of Asian Americans tend to be. So whether I was in class or whether I was out on the field, um, playing baseball, you know, I just really didn't have a lot of Asian American friends. Um, and looking back on it, you know, there, you know, of course there were jokes that were made and you just kind of laugh them off, but um, as, as you get older, you kind of realize the, the concept of a microaggression and how that kind of compounds over your lifetime to um, shape how you feel about yourself and your ethnicity. And so, um, you know, for, for a long time, I, I felt other like the first adjective you would think of when you were to describe me was was Asian. Um, you know, at least, at least for my friends, it wouldn't be like, oh, no, he's like a smart, funny, witty kid. Like, no, he's the he's the Asian kid. So um, there was, you know aspects of that, that, um, definitely made me feel alone. That obviously it didn't help that there weren't other Asian kids to kind of like, uh, commiserate with, but, and, and so, yeah, just for the first, you know, 18 years of my life, I, I was the, you know, one of the only Asians there. And, and I just kept on seeing ways that it was holding me back, like socially, especially. And what was the turning point for you to sort of embrace your Asian identity and Asian culture and be like, you know what, being Asian is pretty damn awesome. What was that turning point for you like? I think it was in college when, you know, I, I had met some other Asian Americans and just realized how similar all of our upbringings were. Um, and on it, to segue to Asian flush, that's kind of how that came to exist was just like noticing all these subtle ways that we grew up a very similar childhood. And I felt instantly closer to these friends, even despite spending less time with them, just because I, I felt like they were just like me. Um, I, I wouldn't say I ever got to a point where I felt like, uh, that there were maybe certain characteristics about myself that were like tied to being Asian that I'm like extremely proud of. I would just say I felt more that I, there was like a community that I could relate to and that gave me strength. I'm really, really glad to hear that. And, you know, community is so important in in order to like, just feel like you belong, feel like you, you're not any different than anyone, anyone else. And you know, I think some people actually go to your life and never find that community. And it's really sad to hear, but I'm glad that you found it. And that was a turning point for you. And I think that 
no matter how good or bad every experience is, it feels like we, as entrepreneurs, you always draw on every single one of experience, right? To be like, okay, like this is an opportunity to do something better or improve stuff for, for Asian, whatever Asian identity, Asian culture. And let's quickly talk about, First, before we get into like Asian flesh, I want to hear yeah. why you chose the name Ugly LLC. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, we were looking for like a short, pithy, like memorable name. And I guess we picked Ugly just from the sense of like, you know, with the connotation of Ugly, there's an, a, uh, a meaning of, you know, unwanted or undesirable. And when I think about um, trying to break into creating products for niche communities, I felt that there was a common thread of feeling like the outcast, feeling like you're ugly, um, at least, you know, to mainstream. And so as we're just thinking about like, what, what is the theme? What is the guiding mission between all the games that we want to launch in the future? It's kind of just like, it as maybe as corny as it sounds to embrace the ugliness. Um, Cause I, I think that's where, you know, truth lies. And, you know, you know, when you see like your girlfriend without makeup for the first time, or like, you know, you get to really know somebody and they tell you all their dark stories and dark secrets. Like that's when yeah, I feel like you truly get to know somebody. And so, um, yeah, that's why I called it that. There's such a deep meaning behind your ugly LLC. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's, yeah, that's great yeah. to know. Um, yeah, let's quickly talk about Asian Flush. Uh, as again, you started with $500 to start Asian Flush. How'd you do it? Like walk us through the first step and everything. And how'd you come up with the prototype? How'd you test it? How'd you find your co-founders? We want to know everything. <clears throat> yeah, so I think the guiding principle of it all was the concept of a minimum viable product. But I think there's a layer that's even more minimally viable. And it's what is the um, minimal viable product you put out for distribution? So like, how can I test this idea in its minimal form? You know, a lot of people go into like prototypes. I got to test it. I got to do all this stuff, but you really don't. You just have to, well, what we did was we created a landing page we created the concept for the game. And we just said, Hey, we're going to ship this out in four to eight weeks. Um, here's what the game is. Here's an example of some cards. Here's the artwork. Um, here's what the brand stands for, blah, blah, blah. Um, and then we just started running ads to that landing page. Um, and from the get-go, I don't know if you guys know anything about Facebook ads or how well-versed you guys are in that, but the name of the game is to make enough in revenue so that you can pay for the cost of your ads. And then when you have that, you have just essentially a, a money printing machine. You pay for more for ads, you get more revenue, it pays for the ads, you get, pro yeah, it, it just kind of accelerates that way. Um, and to my surprise, pretty much from day two of launching, we were at that point where, you know, uh, we, we were just trying to throw as much money as we could on the, on the ads because it was getting out to people and people were buying it. <laughs> Um, so to, like, we had no prototype. We did not test the game at all. Uh, it, honestly, I, I, I had a friend do the, do the artwork and then I spent like 30 minutes at a cafe writing 10 cards, just looking at like Asian memes online and, and stuff that I thought was relatable. And uh, yeah, it hit, it hit like pretty instantly. I really like how action oriented you are. 
you know, and just really getting it done. Most people would be like, I have five hundred dollars. Prototyping is probably going to cost me over a thousand. That's not possible, right? And the fact yeah, that you're yeah. like, you know what? Let's think minimal viable product. Will this product even sell to begin with? Right? That's how yeah, ballsy. Yeah. That's how like ballsy of you encourages to like go out and pursue that idea. And that's that's something to commend for sure. Thank you. I mean, there's definitely no lesson to learn from like how viral it went from the beginning. Um, I wish I had like more like pain points and lessons to be like, oh yeah, you should avoid this mistake, blah blah blah. But um, yeah, I think the thing is just just like everyone. Um, I don't know. There's just never gonna be a moment where you feel ready. There's never gonna be a moment where you feel like fully confident that this is the thing that's gonna work out well. Um, and if you've launched enough enough things, you know that even if you do feel that confident, sometimes it doesn't work out either. So I figure just rip the bandaid off and just get it out there and, and see if people will actually, you know, take their credit cards out and put their information in. If you, they can do that, then I mean you're onto something. Yeah, that's, I mean, we, we hear that all the time, you know, there's never a right time to be ready and you just have to do it to even see if it, if it will become successful. And, you know, Asian Flush did become extremely successful and it became so, so viral. And I remember like during this one time when everyone was talking about it and everyone put it on their Instagram stories and put it on their Snapchat and everyone was playing this game. And I think like during that time when, you know, Crazy Rich Asians was coming out and subtle Asian traits and all of these things like encompassing Asian culture what do you think were like the few things that made it so viral? Cause I think like in this creator economy now, a lot of people are trying to become viral, whether that be for like their personal brand or for their product. Right. But a lot of people don't get to that virality and they're trying so, so hard. So what do you think was like one of the few things that made it become so viral to begin with? Yeah. So I think there's two main components to it. Um, probably the first part was that, it was just extremely relatable. And I think that really matches um, how the internet works now. I think back in the day, if you look at like Cars Against Humanity and even just some of the TV shows back then, it was really based on like being absurd, saying something crazy and just being like, wow, that is so out of the ordinary. This is hilarious. Um, but as you started to see the internet sort of allow people to segregate into their own you know, micro communities online, you start to see like relatable humor and memes really start to pop up where it's less about um, being super absurd and more being like, oh, I relate to that. And it's very subtle. And I didn't even know that that was something that I felt, but I do. And so that was kind of the, I guess when I'm writing any sort of car, that's kind of what I think about, like, what is something that all Asians do? Maybe not all, but a lot of Asians do that they don't realize is common. Um, so we kind of like mimicked that sort of meme format that was popular. What I think about it is like every card should could correspond to like an actual meme. Um, and then the other part, I think it's just, I think you alluded to it as just like uh, board games and card games are inherently very shareable. Like it's not something you play by yourself. You're going to play it with seven to eight people, maybe more, maybe less. Um, and so if one pack gets out there and one person buys it, you figure probably gets exposed to 20 plus people. And so if it's a good game, then it's likely to spread. I like that. And let's talk a little bit more about that too, because, uh, you know, creating, creating a concept and then creating a game that is easy to play and relatable to Asian culture is probably a lot easier said than done. 
So like, <laughs> let's talk through your, iter- <laughs> yeah. your, your iteration. Yeah. Like, I know you mentioned that, you know, you're at a cafe, you're finding image, like 10 images. How did you get your friends to play this card game and give you proper feedback? Because what I realized among friends is you give them a product or an app or whatever, or a game, and they're not going to try to hurt your feelings. They're going to be like, John, this is yeah. awesome. Right. And that's not the feedback that <laughs> yeah, you yeah. need in order yeah. to create a like, no, successful product. So how did you get the initial iteration testing going? And how many rounds of iteration did you, did you get before you're like, you know what, we're going to release this to manufacturing and get this printed now. Yeah. So I did none of that. Um, we had, you know, thousands of orders and, and a timeline. And then actually the timeline of when we released was around Lunar New Year. So the factories were shutting down. So we really had to get the order in as soon as possible. Um, so I, and in lieu of testing, I did do a ton of research and I, it's not research. It's called just looking at memes online. <laughs> uh, I spent hours and hours looking at memes online, figuring out what I you know, thought was funny. Um, mixed it up with, you know, experiences from my own childhood um, and just put it into the deck. I mean, to me, like I wasn't expecting Asian flush to be viral at all. I was just like, Oh, here's like a fun little side project and I'm going to just, you know, wing it. And if people like it, they like it. And if they don't, they don't. So the first iteration of the game had no testing done. Um, Pretty much. I typed it out, checked for, you know, typos and sent to the printer. And that was, that was it. You are a brave man and incredible. I'm, I'm a little bit, cra- I think I'm a little <laughs> bit crazy. I'm not going to lie. So I think crazy. it might be a little bit crazy. crazy. <laughs> I'm happy to report our process is a lot more procedural now than it was in the past. I'll say that. Yeah, that is insane. I've actually never heard that before because we've had like friends who have came out with card games and they went through like a whole iteration process of like testing it with friends and family to make sure, you know, does this look okay? Does it sound okay? But, you know, you went straight to the memes and, you know, obviously memes exist because people relate to them and there's so much relatability to them. And memes Mm -hmm. can become so viral because people are like, oh my God, that's exactly what I relate to. Or like, that's exactly Mm -hmm. what happened to me. Mm -hmm. And I think what's so interesting about Asian Flush is that it actually attaches onto some like deep seated issues in the Asian culture and Asian family too. Like the, the whole like parent child dynamic of like, you know, it being a source of trauma for some people too. Like mm-hmm. for example, if you were pre-med at one point, take four mm-hmm. sets or something like that. Or if you had to calculate your, the lowest grade you need to get to keep an A, take a couple of sips or something like that. And pe- yeah, it yeah. makes people think like, oh my gosh, that happened to me, you know? And it like yeah. triggers some type of trauma. Like and my you, parents- You just trigger all my trauma time. too. Just now. <laughs> we should drink. We should have some sips. <laughs> we, we might actually bring the flush to Asian flush. You know, Maggie gets kind of red. Yeah, yeah. Oh, nice. I Okay, so here's my theory on Asian flush. Some people are very embarrassed to have it. I think it's like the, the greatest thing to have. It is. It is. Just, you actually don't just, have to drink as much because people are like, oh my gosh, you're drunk already. <laughs> yeah, you're drunk. You're having a good time. They just know you're having a good time. It's like a, I don't know. It's like you're wearing like a sign on your face. I'm having a great time right now. <laughs> Again, we're not advocating for alcoholics in our podcast. We're just mentioning this is also a party game. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I know you mentioned the word we a lot of times as you mentioned the game. Do you have co-founders? And what is your co-founder relationship like? How did you find them? And 
I mean, are, are you still part of the journey today? So I do have a partner. Um, her name's Carolina, uh, but it's not in a, the way it works is that I told her here, you go launch the Latino version of this game. So she owns that. I own Asian flush. We still talk regularly. Um, but at, I mean, at this point, it's just me running Asian flush and she runs, uh, and her game's called Tragos. And so we both launched roughly around the same time. Mine came out probably about like two months earlier. And then she ended up launching Tragos after, um, I don't know. That's a, that's also just a habit. Whenever I talk about stuff that like the company is doing, I always say we for some reason. But no worries. We we is a great way to yeah. to mention it. It's better. It's better than I for sure. But yeah, I mean, let's let's talk. You're a one man show, man. That's really impressive. Let's talk a little bit more about the challenges challenges you face along the way. Has it has there ever been any time where you're just like you know you're not getting enough sales or something is going wrong or people are just writing bad reviews like. How'd you overcome these challenges? Because entrepreneurship is not as glamorous as, as, a, as a lot of people think it is. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of hard work. It's a lot of dark moments of just being sad. Yeah. So right now I'm kind of approaching, I guess the life cycle of the business where I don't know. I've been in, in it a few years and kind of understand what it's going to take to make this last, I don't know, 10, 20 years, if, if it even lasts that long. Um, but I'm realizing that the games business is a hits-based business. It's like being uh, uh, an author or being a musical artist. Um, you have to spend a lot of time working on the next hit. Cause your, your current hits are, they're going to fade over time. Like eventually everyone who will ever want to play Asian flesh will get the opportunity to play it. Um, and either, I guess the, I mean, even the, even the, you know, expansions, they'll, they'll, some of them will play, but it, at, at a point in time, it will not be interesting to people anymore. And so it'll be up to me to think about, okay, well, what's the next big hit. And um, I, you know, the pressure of trying to figure out exactly what that is, um, is a lot and certainly certainly i feel overwhelmed a lot um because you know while asian flush puff puff pass and stay the fuck inside have taken off um there are 12 titles that i've launched in the last two years that have failed and obviously no one's heard of those um and you know you hear this you hear what people say often about you know content creators they always just notice the negative comments never the, the positive ones so if i were to you know correlate that to successful launches versus, you know, unsuccessful launches, you know, I definitely feel the weight of our failures more significantly. And then if it adds pressure to, okay, well, that one didn't work. Why didn't it work? What's the next one? Um, but you never actually really get the clear feedback as to why something didn't work. You just have to guess and figure out how to improve that part of the process. Um, so right now we're going through that and, you know, we're trying to think about, Oh, well, what should our next title be? Um, and, and unfortunately this year, we, while we are living off the success of our launches in 2020, we didn't have a single successful launch in 2021. And so um, that certainly, you know, adds pressure to it all. Yeah. And th- thanks for sharing that. You know, it's, you, we, we rarely talk about our failures, failures like that. And the fact that you're sharing that with us shows that, you know, how you are as a leader and you're absolutely right. This, this industry is very hard. And any industry that you choose is difficult in their own way, right? And what you did mention is your sense of awareness, right? How did you 
develop your sense of awareness for like new ideas and new products? Was it something that was like acquired over time? Was it naturally to you? Like, how did you get a pulse of like what your target audience is and how do you identify your target audience? Yeah, that's a really complicated answer. Cause I guess it's like, when does inspiration truly strike for you? And I can't say that there's really a particular moment where I'm like, okay, I'm going to schedule an hour of for myself to sit down and think about it every day. Um, it's more of like a constant 24 seven process of just digesting what's happening in the world and thinking about, you know, what could we make from that? Um, you know, sometimes it's in the shower. Sometimes it's when I'm having drinks with a friend or, you know, it's, it's the randomest times when the idea comes. Um, but I would say the the thing that I try to do most consistently is to just digest as much information as possible. Like I'm always, oh, no, no, I am always on my phone. I'm always on my phone, always on Twitter, always on YouTube, always on Instagram. Um, I'm always keeping up with the news, everything, just trying to keep track of what's happening in the world and what's popular and what's trending. Um, oh, and TikTok, TikTok, TikTok's another good one. Um, and, you know, maybe I'll have a couple of theses a month where, oh, maybe this will work and I'll explore the idea a little further, um, realize it's not the one and kind of go through this like very chaotic process of trying and, you know, start and stop over and over again. Yeah. I mean, like Brian mentioned, like, thank you so much for even mentioning about, you know, the failures that you went through. Um, uh, you know, it's it's very heroic for people to like even mention that to begin with, because I feel like especially in the Asian community, we don't talk about those and we never want to talk about them because it's all about like saving face. Right. We always want to talk about mm -hmm. our successes and we never want to talk about our failures. Um, but it's it's you know, we commend you for talking about them because it teaches us a really big lesson. <laughs> And it shows us like the whole picture, right? Because mm -hmm. all we hear about is Asian flush and puff up pass and stay the fuck inside. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if we're able to express the fact that, you know, we do have failures, people might have a different, you know, per perception on them. Like a lot of people think, yeah. oh, these people made it so big because they they just like got lucky, you know, and just had like a, like a hit wonder and they just became successful based on that one game, but they don't see what goes on behind the scenes, you know, they don't see all the, the times that they have failed and all the yeah. tries that it has to take. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned that, um, you know, your, your mother, before she she wanted you to go into like a very conventional path to success did you talk to your mother about the success of asian flesh and how did she take that and what does she think of the game now so actually she's been involved with the running of the business since the beginning so wow. we didn't have a fulfillment center when we first started and um so we it was literally her packing and shipping out all the orders um and so we did end up trying a third party fulfillment center. It absolutely sucks. I don't recommend it. Um, and so we shifted it all back in house again. So my mom is still actively a part of the business and actually she's quite busy with all the cyber Monday and black Friday uh, sales happening. Um, I think the I think the thing that she was trying to protect me from was not, I, I don't think she actually wanted me to, you know, be a doctor. I think she wanted to shield me from the stress of being an entrepreneur. Cause she, you know, had a small business growing, you know, in America. And so she knows what that's like um, to be on the grind always, like never taking a vacation and never truly being able to enjoy yourself um, and never being able to like fully check out of work really. 
And so I think she understood the grind of that. I'm only like five years into it. Right. But she's experienced that grind for 25 years. Well, probably more, but you know, just the grind of having to keep the business going. And that's something that, you know, probably a lot of people don't want to talk about, but that's probably, that's probably the hardest part. The, the, well, obviously the hard part is creating a good business, but maybe the second hardest part is like keeping it going for 20 years, like being happy, healthy, like really not letting entrepreneurship burn the candle at both, at both ends, so to speak. Um, and so I think that's what she was protecting me from. Well, now, and I think now that it is going well, she's, you know, she hasn't mentioned becoming a doctor. Sometimes she does say, Hey, do you ever want to go to like business school or something? Um, but you know, I think, I think now pretty much she's proud. Wow. I'm so glad to hear that. I mean, I'm so glad that you brought that up because Brian and I, we talk about that all the time. Like our Asian parents, they had to become entrepreneurs because that was their only choice. You know, they didn't have any other option. And a lot of them had opened up restaurants, had opened up their own, you know, mom and pop store, you know, selling appliances, whatever. But that was because they didn't have any other option, you know, and they knew how difficult and how complicated it was. And they didn't want us to to go through the same experience. So all they know is like, you know, becoming a doctor, becoming a lawyer is the only safe route. So that's what mm-hmm. I want for my kids. You know, I don't want them to go through the same similar struggle as I did. But at the end of the day, they're just trying to look out for us, you know, because that's really totally. all they know. Absolutely. I have to say the grind is real, you know, as an entrepreneur. It's like you think about all the time. You sort of have just panic attacks randomly. You're like, oh, no, something's not, <laughs> yeah. something's not going right. <laughs> you know? Yeah, you yeah, it, totally. In the bigger picture, it's mostly all in your head. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for and, sure. For sure. Yeah. And I know you mentioned earlier that you do consume a lot of content. How do you find a balance between John time and business time? Because that is that seems to be the hardest part of being, about being an entrepreneur because we're always on the grind, yeah. we're always hustling. But unfortunately, there's a sign back. You guys can't see it if you're listening to the podcast, but it's always <laughs> hustling in the back. But yeah. we're going to talk more about like balancing your your life and you know, your, your boundaries and everything. How do you manage everything? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really important to have hobbies that are active, um, that consume all of your attention, um, that, you know, that are also, I guess, productive, but at the end of the day, their main purpose is to just give you your, your mind a break. And so I do have a few of those. Um, I work out a lot, not a lot, it depends on, it's all relative, right. But I work out three times a week. Um, I have become obsessed with cooking. So, that, that part is really fun. You can't really do anything else while you're cooking. You have to like, you don't want to like cut your, your finger off. Um, so, so actually I've been uh, ex- exploring a lot of Korean recipes. So I've been making my own kimchi and just kind of like recreate all of my mom's recipes that I really enjoyed. So that's actually been kind of fun talking with her on the phone, like sending her pictures being like, does this look right? Like how much more should I put into this? Um, but I think you have to have some of that other, other stuff that, that keeps you happy outside of work. Um, and so I, I, I dive into those hobbies about as intensely as I dive into entrepreneurship. Um, and that, that's what keep me, keeps me sane. The other thing that I've picked up recently this year um, is reading. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure a lot of people read, but um, I, I find it's, it's a really great way to like turn the, the busy brain off. Um, and then, and I guess lastly, meditating, I did meditate a little bit before our, our podcast so I could, you know, have a clear mind. Um, I've been incorporating that, uh, almost daily and, you know, I think 
it's been working so far. Uh, the, you know, the whole panic attack thing is very relatable. And I realized like, if I don't really focus on getting my mental health right, like I'm going to die early <laughs> from all this, all this stress. So I read a lot of like self-help books um, and, you know, try to try to do everything that they say to like, keep your mind. Right. So that's like the other, other thing. Yeah. Just keep in mind that you're not alone, dude. You, we had so many people on the podcast already and it's, it's we all agree to the same stuff. We just, you just have to keep your, like your mental health straight because without that, like your everything's no, your whole world's going to crumble. Right. And I'm, I'm glad you're yeah, taking totally. proactive steps to like meditate, read, work out, cook. Um, very relatable to me as well. I also do all those things and uh, mm-hmm. we're proud of you, man. Thanks for keep, thanks for sharing uh, what keeps you sane and setting boundaries for yourself is really important. Mm-hmm. So John, how do you feel like you have grown as a person as well? Cause I'm sure like just, you know, creating all of these games as it relates to you know, the Asian culture, I'm sure your perception of the Asian culture has changed as well, you know, as it relates to yourself. Um, and I'm sure you get like a ton of feedback too from people who have played the game and talk mm-hmm. about like, wow, I've had to dive deeper into my cultural heritage and learn more about myself and my family and how it relates to like my relationship with my parents as well. Um, but talk about like how you've grown yourself and just like mentally, emotionally, um, as it relates to, you know, your perception of the Asian culture. Well, it's definitely a lot healthier than it used to be. Um, and I don't even know if it's like my own personal growth. I think it's just been great to like see Squid Game go off and um, like anime pop off and just see how much we are being uh, embraced by culture now, I guess by the world now. Um, I, and I, I, I guess I can't, I can't take any credit for that. And it's entirely external to me and I haven't done really any sort of personal development for, for that to happen. But I, I definitely have a lot more healthy relationship towards it now than I did. Um, I would say, um, I don't know, it's just a lot more healthy and I am trying to both heal my own trauma of growing up Asian American, but also getting older and understanding where my parents came from. Cause I think that's the other important part is like, well, you acknowledge that there was trauma and then you also acknowledge that they were a person going through their things. And so you really can't hold them, um, at fault for, for, I guess, for creating that, um, they were just trying to do their best that they could at the time. And so, you know, I guess kind of straddling, straddling that fine line is something that I'm still trying to work on now. Um, you know, I think it has been really nice uh, trying to, I think the one thing that I have been really trying to do over the last couple of years is to really create a strong relationship with my mother, not in from like a mom to son relationship, but like actually trying to hear like, what are her struggles and like, what is she dealing with right now? Um, Cause she's got a ton of stuff on her plate. You know, she has, you know, she's getting older. I'm sure that has a certain amount of stress. Um, you know, obviously, obviously specifically to her, she doesn't have a life partner. So what does that really look like for her in, in the next, you know, couple of decades, in the last couple of decades of her life? Um, I don't know. I rambled, but <laughs> Oh, I, I love that. I love that you're trying to build that relationship with your mother. And I think we often forget that as we're growing older, they're growing older as well. 
you know, mm-hmm. and it's it's true. Like there is a lot of generational trauma involved in in families, but we often forget that you know maybe they were put into situations that they couldn't even control. You know, and oftentimes that mm-hmm. is true, and they had their own trauma as well. You know, and and oftentimes that gets kind of passed down to us. But mm-hmm. I think they were trying to make the best situation out of what they had at that time as well, just like how we are. You know, and sometimes we just have to remember to you know check in on them because mm-hmm. you know their their time on this earth is, is shorter than the time that we have on earth right totally yeah we're all human you know at the end of the day mm-hmm. we all have the same desires um so i'm glad that you're spending a lot more time connecting your mom i'm kind of curious too um i know this this issue happens to a lot of founders about having your company become your identity Right. It's like John's the founder of Asian Flush, or everywhere you go, everyone everyone else introduce you. John the founder of Asian Flush. How do you how do you separate your identity and self-worth from your company to who you are as a person? Because it's so easy to attach yourself to the sort of successes or failures of your company, right? And you're like, oh my God, I'm totally a failure because my company's not doing well. I'm very successful if that gets to your head because the company's doing well. How do you separate that part of your identity? to yourself personally, at least, in order to keep yourself like separated and set boundaries and know who you are as a person? Yeah, so that's a, there's a lot of layers to that, I think. Um, obviously, a lot of us as entrepreneurs pursue things because they are a big part of us and, and represent our interests. Um, and then obviously there are a lot of ups and downs of that because, you know, based on the successes and failures of, of that, I think probably the most helpful thing is just having a really strong group of friends around me where I'm not John, the creator of Asian Flush. I'm just, you know, John to them. And so, you know, by, I think, focusing on on creating strong relationships with them. It kind of keeps me grounded and, and more focused on like what, what life really is. And then there will be moments where I do have to go and go to like an event and be like, Oh I'm, yeah, I'm John, the creator of Asian flush. And I'm going to have to like play that character for a bit. Um, but yeah, I, I would say it's, it's really just having, having friends that, that ground me that, that keep me away from um, getting too tied up into it. And then I think, the other part is just true for everybody where there's a lot of attachment of our identity onto the things we've done and the places we've been and I guess the items we have and are able to buy. And that's just, I guess, a, a personal journey for any human to kind of detach from. Um, and I think a lot of that comes down to like what trying to acknowledge your self-worth as a person just inherently, just that you exist, you have value and are, are, are you know, worthwhile. And so, you know, that's the other part where it's like, you know, I, I really am trying to focus on that. And that's really hard for Asian Americans, especially because we're always taught like, oh, you got to get good grades and that's how you get attention from your parents. So you have to exceed and you have to do really well or you're worth nothing. Um, and so trying to unlearn that is, is the other aspect of that I'm really focusing on. Man, you have such a deep understanding of your identity and life. So it's so refreshing to hear that. And thank you so much for sharing that. You know, it's you're absolutely right. You do need friends that that keep you grounded. I, I personally experience something like that too. It's just like, I'm just a normal person. Normal, that normal friend that you had in the past, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 sure. yeah. It definitely goes a long way, man. Uh, so I guess since we're nearing the end of the podcast, um, what 
if you if you can redo any part of your journey, which part would it be and why? Hmm. Um, I mean, I guess the cliche answer is that none of it, because then I don't end up here if I don't take that path. But looking back, is there something that could have kept me from an even better path? I think it's probably the self-confidence piece. Um, I think that you always see like there's a level of extreme narcissism with some of these like billionaire founders. And I'm not saying that I want all of that, but maybe if I had like, you know, a couple more percentage points of that into me inherently, maybe some of the things I've done would have turned out even better than, than they have right now. Um, I'm not sure where I get that two, that two or 3% of it, but it's, there seems to be a correlation there where there is like a, a strong belief in yourself and the things that you do um, uh, that lead to success. So. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, and I, I do want to know, you know, what's, what's next for you, John, in like the next mm. five years, like, what do you, ha- what do you hope to, you know, have achieved in the next five years for yourself as well as for all of the games that you have lined up? Well, make sure to get you back on the podcast in five years. So you can <laughs> share with us again. <laughs> <laughs> that would be great. Uh, hopefully we're all still running by then. Um, so next, uh, immediately, I want to, in case you can't tell, I've been like really into like self-care and like self-development lately. Like I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm quoting from the books I've been reading lately. Um, but I do want to launch a brand around uh, mental health, self-care um, from a business perspective. Uh, the industry has, I think, grown 10X since 2014. I think it was like, I don't want to quote this, but maybe it was like, 2 billion to, you know, 20 billion or something like that. Um, so that business is rapidly growing. And actually I think demographically speaking, millennials in terms of healthcare, their mindset is like, uh, how do I not go to the doctor essentially? Um, so a lot of people in lieu of pursuing actual healthcare and treatment are, you know, going towards, you know, uh, quartz crystals and like affirmation books. And stuff like this. Um, so I do want to launch something around that concept because it is very, it's what I'm interested in now. It's very personal. And if there's, if there's anything that I can extract from these books that I've been reading and put it into like a really nice condensed form for people to get a lot of value out of, then that's something I want to create. Um, and then after that, I think, I don't know how many more games I have in me. I think I, I might pursue something else, whatever that something else is, but I, I am feeling like there's another chapter that's about to start. So I'm not really sure what, what that will be, but I'm like open to all the possibilities and, and really spending a lot of time thinking about that now. Love it. We're so excited for all of the plans that you have. And I love that you're going into the mental health space because it's, there's like such a big stigma around it and we rarely talk about it, but I think we're getting into a time where it's, it's, it's talked about a little bit more now, especially after the pandemic and, you know, a lot of us seeking help from, you know, things that we've experienced through the pandemic. So I'm really glad you're going into that space. Um, so this is our last question for you, John. And if you could give one advice to an aspiring entrepreneur, what would that one advice be? Um, this is just cause it's top of mind, but it's to hire your mom. Uh, people always say, okay. So people always say that no one will care about your business as much as you do. Um, 
I think your mom might be the one person who does. <laughs> and so um, she's been great. She's, she cares about it. Like it's her own business. Cause, cause it is, you know, I'm her baby and she wants me to do well. So um, hiring her has been the best decision I've ever made. And um, it also feels really great to be able to like provide for, for your mother too. So. I love it. I love that advice. That's I think that's the first time we had that advice on this podcast, but it's so true. And it actually keeps them busy, you know, it's like, yeah, yeah. A lot of our moms are probably retired by now and, you know, they oftentimes want to do something and that's like the perfect Absolutely. time for them to do something. And, and it gives us something to talk about. Like, otherwise, yeah. like, you know, we might call your mom once a month, but but I think due to the business, you know, we talk a couple of times a week, which I think is really nice. Yeah. I love that. So John, where can our listeners find out more about you and all of your games online? Yes. So you can find Asian flush on Instagram at AZN flush game. Um, you can find my stoner game, which I know we didn't get to talk about. Um, it's called puff puff pass. And you can find that at play puff puff pass on Instagram. Um, links to the site will be there. Uh, links to, I think my, the links to my Instagram will be on there too. If you want to follow me. Um, and I think that's it. I think those are all the links. Awesome. We will leave all of those in the show notes for this episode. Just wanted to thank you so much for being on our podcast today, John. We had such a great time learning about your story. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. Um, I'd love to come on again in five years. <laughs> we'll make sure you have you um, on. Yeah, that sounds great. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time today, John. And thank you again so much for sharing your story with us. We look forward to seeing your, all your future successes. Thank you so much. Thank you, John. Hey guys, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe to the show. We would like to get to the top 10 on iTunes. So be sure to leave us a five-star review. We release an episode every single Wednesday, so stay tuned. Thank you guys so much.